Amen. If you have your Bibles today, please take them and turn to Acts chapter 6, and we'll be looking at the first six and a half or so verses of Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the Bibles that's on the end of each pew, and uh, that Bible is yours to keep if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all. It's our gift to you. Let's read this together from Acts chapter 6, and we'll read 1 through 7. It says, now in these days, checking my microphone, there we go. All right, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the, in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It is a water bottle day for me. I don't know if you noticed. We have seen together over the last three weeks, and we'll see together today, that God has laid out for us blueprints of how churches should be run. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about this. I called this this sermon series, it's just a short four-week sermon series, I called it Bible Blueprints for Church, but a more accurate name for that would really be Bible Blueprints for Plural Eldership. That was already the name of the booklet that I I wrote for you, and so if you haven't gotten that booklet, then you just get it. You need to to have that. You need to read through it as a church member. um, Really encourage you to do that, to look up the Scripture references as you go through. But there is much, much in the Scripture that we could say about here is how church should be done. We could go into uh, details having to do with baptism, having to do with the Lord's Supper, having to do with church membership and church discipline and various things like that, and we have discussed many of those things over the years, and we will continue to discuss those as they come up in Scripture. But in particular right now, our need as a church is to think through our leadership structure as we are doing what we've been talking about for years and years and years, as we first saw together in the book of Acts years ago, that this is the standard pattern for churches in the Bible is to have not just one guy who is the pastor, but to have what we call a plurality of elders, elder, pastor, overseer, interchangeable words for the same church office. Not all of those men need necessarily to be employees of the church or to give the same amount of time toward that work or to have the same amount of theological schooling toward that work or to... uh, to be the main preacher in equal amounts to each other, but yet to have men who are designated by the church to be together the spiritual leaders of the church. So we've kind of seen that together. We've seen together the Bible presents a plurality of elders as the normal and expected system of church leadership, which, by the way, is not a form of church that I have ever been a member of personally. And yet it is what is in the Scripture, and we need to follow the Scriptures. And the fact that we have not done this before is not the worst problem in the world. That's one of the things that we saw together, 
that we need to be built first and foremost on the foundation of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3. This is what the church needs to be built on, Christ. And yet, the fact that it is not the most important thing doesn't mean that it's not an important thing. If God has given us instructions about how we're supposed to do something in the Scriptures, well, that matters. So the primary things are not the only important things, even though we can recognize that they're not the primary things. But we want to follow the blueprints of what the Scripture has laid out in terms of its commands and its examples. But I want to point out to you just a a few of the consequences that I've seen in literally every church I've ever been a member of, uh, of not having a plurality of elders. All right. A few of these things, and you may never have, have thought through these things in these terms before, or maybe you have because you read the booklet that I wrote for you. I don't know. But one of those things is that the solo pastor has practical authority over all aspects of church life. Practical authority. And, and, and so what that effectively does is it makes everything rise or fall on the strengths or the weaknesses of one man. That's not the best thing in the world. Now, there are some men who handle that just spectacularly. And that is so great to see when you see that. And yet, it really ought not to all depend on one person. Now, churches also have a sense that it ought not to depend on one person. And so what tends to end up happening is that the deacons end up taking an elder-like role, where the deacons end up being sort of this spiritual leadership board where the pastor can come and bounce spiritual leadership decisions off of the deacons. Now, in a way, this is necessary. And in fact, when I personally arrived at this church, I told the deacons up front, I need you guys, in a way, to function kind of like elders, because I ought not to be making every decision by myself. I ought not to just be in my own head. I ought not to just be making my own judgment calls. I need other people to do that. But then what that that does, though, is it requires the deacons to take their attention off of the things that biblically deacons ought to be doing and instead to become sort of a spiritual oversight board that's not really quite necessarily qualified to do that in biblical terms and that is at the same time still only in this advisory role so that everything still falls on the shoulders of one man but just with some advice that he is getting that's, that's good advice. But then another thing that cascades down from that, so you got everything effectively on the shoulders of one man, and then the deacons are devoting their attention toward spiritual leadership issues that biblically elders ought to be devoting their attention to. But then, well, who coordinates the things that deacons in Scripture ought to be doing? Well, those things still have to get done, and so what happens is that boards and committees that are not mentioned anywhere in the Bible end up taking on sort of the deacon role. And sometimes, depending on how the constitution of a church is written, they might even be given elder-like authority in terms of making major decisions for the church. And so it kind of cascades. But what we have in Scripture is that we have two biblical offices of the church, elders and deacons, and we also have a call for the entire congregation to view itself as taking responsibility for serving and for making sure that things are going according to the Scripture in their churches. So what we need to talk about today is we need to talk about what is the biblical role of elders 
in relationship to deacons, in relationship to the congregation. And so that's laid out for us uh, in this passage in, uh, in terms that we can see a little clearer as we, we go through it, as we relate it to some other uh, teachings throughout the Scripture as well. I will just say, as, as we get into this, one of the, the most common misconceptions that people have whenever they hear that a church is moving toward adopting a plurality of elders, uh, a common misconception is, well, that church must be getting rid of congregational voting or must be getting rid of congregational church government. Now, there are churches that do that. There, there really are churches that have, have said, well, the congregation ought not to have any say in anything because why would you just trust a random crowd of people? Well, I'm going to your congregation ought not to just be a random crowd of people, all right? But, uh, but there have been churches, and there are, there are churches that I would even recommend people go to because they are faithful gospel-preaching churches where you'll find that they really have gone away from that congregational um, sense of authority, and, and it re- everything really is just kind of dictated by the elders. That's what we call elder-ruled church. That's not what we're moving toward. What we're moving toward is what's called elder-led congregationalism. And in fact, that's already what we have, except there's just only one elder at this point. And we're trying to make it more than one elder and then free up the other roles in the church based on that to be able to do what they're called to do in Scripture. But how does that work? What's the role of the elders? What's the role of the deacons? What's the role of the congregation? Let's look at this together here in Acts chapter 6. The role of the elders, starting in verse 1, it says, "...in these days when the disciples were increasing in number..." Now, you've got to remember where they are. This is First Baptist Church in Jerusalem. But at this time, all it was called was the church. As far as we know, in, in the time of the, of, of the events of Acts 6, there was no other church in the entire world. This was the church. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were members of the church in Jerusalem, period. And they had 12 pastors, 12 elders, and those were the 12 apostles. And you remember one of those originally had been Judas, and he proved himself not to be genuine, and they had appointed after that in Acts chapter 1 Matthias to take his place. And so they had these 12, and they were functioning as the 12 elders of the church. And they were increasing in those days, it says. They started out with 120 people in Acts chapter 1. By Acts chapter 2, they're up to 3,000. By this point, there are several thousand. It says they were increasing in number, and as that happened, you can imagine what an incredible organizational nightmare that must have been. A complaint arose. Now, let me tell you this. The fact that a complaint arises in churches ought never to take you by surprise. If, if you look in, into the New Testament and you want to find a church where everybody is completely on the same page and there are no complaints, you will not find such a place. If you're looking for a place like that, it's called heaven. And the pastor's name is Jesus, and he does a great job. But there was a complaint. Now, this, when it says complaint, it uses a word that's actually the same word as the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness. So, this was an unpleasant situation, but it was a valid complaint at the same time. A complaint by the Hellenists, which is those who had grown up speaking primarily Greek, arose against the Hebrews, which is those who had grown up speaking primarily Hebrew. And so you've got here something 
of an ethnic, cultural kind of a potential division in the church. That's pretty unhealthy. That is an unhealthy situation, and it was being caused, it says, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What is the daily distribution? Well, it's something that's pretty unfamiliar to us because in our culture, in our time, we're not really in a context where you have to go and bring food to widows every day or they will starve. We praise God that that's not the case today. But that was the case then. And so a big thing that the church was trying to do was just make sure that the the church members who were in desperate physical need were taken care of on a regular basis. And so there had to be this coordination. Who is going to go and get food to the widows? And that was very important. They had other important things, or they had other things that, that they didn't have to worry about at all. For example, they didn't have a building. Can you imagine that? It says that they met all together in Solomon's portico. So they they went to an outside location in the middle of Jerusalem, and they met together, and then they went and they had fellowship from house to house, but they didn't have to have any building maintenance guys. That's pretty interesting, even in a megachurch like that. But there are all of these kinds of things that just have to get done in the church, and this was one that had to get done, and it was threatening this horrible, unhealthy division in the church. But the elders, these apostles, they come, and what do they say? It says in verse 2, this, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, does that mean that they felt that they were above serving tables? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But they also knew that if they devoted all their time to this issue of coordinating the widow food distribution, they would not be able to devote their time to the preaching of the word. And then it says down in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This tells us, first of all, here is the main function that elders, pastors, overseers are to have in the church. It is the ministry of the word and prayer. It's laid out for us right there. Now, there's obviously a lot of other things that happen. There's a lot of stuff that comes up. There's a lot of coordinating of things. And yet, this has to be something that takes the top priority for the work of elders, the ministry of the Word and prayer. I want you to just keep in mind, and I've mentioned this before, even in this sermon series, that that Jesus told Peter, do you love me? He told him that three times in slightly different wording. Peter answered yes each time. And each time, Jesus said, well, if you love me, here's what you were to do. Feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Care for the flock. Feed the sheep. And when this situation comes up in Acts 6, where there is literal hungry people who need to be fed The way that Peter and the other apostles treat that situation is we as the leaders, as the pastors, we need to devote ourselves to feeding the sheep the word of God. And we also are going to have to make sure that their bellies get fed too. But we can't stop feeding with Christ's food, which is the scripture, the word of God. So, The ministry of the word and prayer is the number one priority that the Bible gives to elders. 
We also see even in this passage that the, the Bible gives elders the ministry of oversight and spiritual leadership of the congregation. Let me just mention really quickly, too. I'm going to go back. The ministry of the word and prayer. Some of you might be thinking, well, that means that if we appoint lay elders, that they are supposed to spend all of their time just preparing sermons. Well, there are other kinds of ministry of the word besides just the, the, the Sunday morning sermon as well, right? So when, when you sit down with somebody and you open up the Bible with them and you talk about what's going on in their life, you could call that counseling. But, but you're feeding them the word. That's the ministry of the word. And obviously, you're going to be praying. The ministry of the word in counseling, it could be teaching in smaller settings. It could be the ministry of the word in writing for the church. It could be the ministry of the word in equipping others to do ministry, even word-based ministry. And so that, that in itself, this ministry of the word needs to be the top priority. Now, oversight and spiritual leadership of the congregation, if you're following along on the, the outline on the back of your bulletin. Back in verse 2 again, right before it said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, it says this, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. Do you see what they're doing there? They're leading. They're not just saying, well, we're going to ignore that situation and just hunker down and, and get a sermon ready and pretend like nothing's happening. No, they, they say, we need to exercise oversight and leadership. We need to send word out that we've got to have a meeting. We're going to come to that meeting with a plan of how we're going to address this. We're going to lead the congregation in the right way to take care of this legitimate issue so that we can preserve unity in the church, so that we can keep the widows fed, and so that we can continue in the ministry of the word without having to be drawn away from it. There's oversight there. There's spiritual leadership there. They, they direct in verse 3, the congregation, here's what to do. They come with a plan. They don't come and say, congregation, what do you think we should do? I don't know. They come with a plan. They are leading. And they say, here's what to do. Pick out from among you. And they've already even got a number in mind, seven men. They've looked and they've seen the situation. They've assessed. Here is about what it's going to take for the coordination of this. We need seven men who can devote attention to this task. And here are the kind of men, congregation, that you're to pick. Those who are of good repute and full of the spirit and of wisdom. They laid out biblical qualifications for them whom we will appoint to this duty. So they saw that the complaint was legitimate. They let the church address that situation properly, but they led them in addressing that situation properly. It says in Acts 20, verse 28, that elders are to pay careful attention to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. They're to look out, they're to oversee. It says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, that elders are to rule well. That word rule sure does sound weird. I don't really, it's, it, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it almost. I don't want to stand up in here and say, I'm ruling you. But that is just the word that it uses. It means leading, leading the congregation. There is an overseeing of the church in general that elders are to do. There's a giving of spiritual direction, both in terms of the organization and in terms of the individual members and how things are to go. This is the oversight and the spiritual leadership of elders. It says in Hebrews 13, 17, it calls the elders leaders who are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Another thing that elders are to do is to lead and to affirm congregational decisions. 
You notice what's going on here? They are asking the congregation to pick out and to vote. It doesn't use the word vote, but there's no other way that this is realistically going to happen. He, they call the congregation. They say, congregation, you pick out these people. But they lead in that. They say, here is the decision that needs to be made, congregation. Here are the ways in which you need to go about making that decision. Here are the criteria that God, by the Holy Spirit, has laid out for what you were to look for in making this decision. This is not just a congregation that's just sort of floating around with no leadership, just gone wild. No, they're being led by their spiritual leaders in how they are to go about making these decisions. They're leading the congregational decision-making process, and they are affirming the congregational decision-making process. After the congregation picks out these seven men who are going to be the first seven deacons in the world, it says in verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles were involved all the way from beginning to end of that whole thing And they were there affirming the decision of the congregation. Here are those that God's people, God's church led by the Holy Spirit, have recognized to meet these biblical qualifications. Now, does that mean that they weren't involved at all in that process of naming who those seven men might be? I don't think so. Because you see these instructions to Timothy and Titus that we talked about last week. When we we went through 1 Timothy 3, when we went through Titus 1, Those are books that are instructions to pastors. Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy and to Pastor Titus and saying to them, Pastor, you need to be involved in looking for what these qualifications are in certain men who might be appointed to the office of elder or to the office of deacon. So they need to be involved in that. They need to talk to the congregation about how to go about doing that. Once the congregation's voted, they need to affirm that. And finally, and this is obviously not the only thing we could say about what elders are to do, but we see this uh, in, in the Scripture, that elders are to equip members to serve in the ministry. All right? To equip members to serve in the ministry. Over here, I mean, in Acts 6, you see a lot of members serving in the ministry, but it says explicitly in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You hear that? These pastors are not to be priests. Priests who would do the work of the ministry on behalf of the people who would come to these priest-like people in order to have their ministry done. No, it's equipping God's people to do the work of the ministry together. It says, for the building up of the body of Christ. So this is something, as as pastors lead, that they're to have in mind, we need all of God's people to be serving each other, to be ministering to each other, to be part of the body of Christ in a functional way. So then what is the role of deacons? You've got here the role of elders as the spiritual leaders of the church. Well, what are the deacons to be? Well, the deacons here are are the office that's appointed in this particular passage. These deacons were to be the ones who were caring for the physical needs of the members, who were caring for the administrative needs of the church, 
and who are organizing helpers. All right, let's, let's think about that. Caring for the physical needs of the members. Remember in verse 1, what was the problem? There were widows who weren't being fed. There needed to be somebody devoting their attention to that. There needed to be somebody coordinating that. In verse 3, it says, We will pick out, uh, excuse me, pick out from among you these seven men whom we will appoint to this duty. You hear that? There is a duty that's involved in the, uh, in the ministry of deacons. It's not to just be a position of, uh, you know, some, some sort of a spiritually lofty person who, who has these decisions brought to him in order to then cast down the edicts to the congregation. That, that is not the role of deacons in the scriptures. The role of deacons right here that you see here and, and throughout the New Testament is things need to be done. Things need to be coordinated. Things such that if the elders, the pastors, were to devote their attention to these things in a sufficient way to get them done, they wouldn't be able to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word because human beings are finite and you just can't do everything. So what, what, what was the specific need here? Well, it was caring for the physical needs of the members. This particular physical need of the members was also something that threatened the unity of the church, and so that has to be something that's kept in mind when appointing deacons are these men who are going to help to maintain unity and the bond of love and peace in the church, but men who can look out and see and, and coordinate with the church who is in need, who needs to be served, who needs help, how can we make those things get met? They're caring also for the administrative needs of the church. Now, it's not just, here's a particular person, I'm going to hand them food. It's also, this is a big thing that needs to get coordinated. There have to be logistics. There, there has to be a plan of how we're going to do this. Those things that are important, but they distract the spiritual leaders from providing spiritual leadership. Again, we don't have this need, this exact need today in terms of starving widows. Praise God. Praise God. There are places in the world that do have that exact need that churches still have to meet. But we have other things that go on, like coordinating finances, coordinating care of the facilities, coordinating program logistics, etc., etc. That kind of thing is the role of deacons. Not that no one else would be involved in those, but the deacons would take leadership in coordinating those administrative things. That's the model we see here, the blueprints of the New Testament. Another thing that these deacons are going to do in that is that they're going to organize helpers. Now, you know how we know that? It's not explicit in this text, but it is implicit in this text. Because do you know how many people were in this church at this time? When the church started back in Acts 1, they had 120 people. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and Peter stood up and preached the gospel, it said that day they were added to their number about 3,000 souls. So they went from 120 people to about 3,120 people. And then when you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says, 
But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, that's not even counting the women and children at that point. You have a crowd of 10,000-plus people here who are making up a church. That, by any contemporary definition of a megachurch, this would be a megachurch. And then you get here to Acts 6, verse 1, and it says, when the disciples were increasing in number, they're increasing even past that, and you get to verse 7, and it says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Let me just ask you this. Do you think, realistically, in a church of perhaps 10,000-plus people, are you only going to have seven pastors or excuse me, 12 pastors and seven deacons, are they the only ones who are going to be doing anything? Obviously not. Even if you're just talking about this specific simple task of feeding the Greek-speaking widows, in a church of 10,000, seven guys are not going to be able to do that by themselves. So the idea here is not that these seven guys are to take it on and tell everybody else, just go home, no more serving. Only people who meet the biblical qualifications for deacons can serve at all. That's not what it is. It's these guys are there to coordinate, to do all of this administrative logistics to make sure that things are still happening across the church in the ways that they need to happen. They have to be organizing helpers because there's no possible way that it could get done by themselves. And I just want to say for us here, we in no way... We have absolutely no intention of telling anybody who is serving to stop serving. We want people to serve, we want more people to serve, and we want people to serve in roles that are biblical, recognizing that the only two biblical officers of the church are elders and deacons, but that saying that doesn't mean that we have to then shut down every other work of service that's already going on. Let's think with that in mind, what is the role of the congregation? You have the elders who are to provide spiritual leadership and oversight, the deacons who are to provide this administrative and logistical kind of coordination. Well, what is the congregation supposed to do? Well, the congregation is supposed to serve in the work of the ministry, to build itself up in love, to grow together in Christ, but there are some specific things that we can see that I want to point out here. One of those is to follow the leadership of the elders. That is part of the role of the congregation, to follow the leadership of the elders. It says this in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see that happening here in Acts 6. The congregation is together making a vote and making a decision, but they're doing it under the leadership and with respect for these elders who are telling them this is the way that we should go. This is how we should care for these things. Now, when we say obey your leaders and submit to them, when we say that the role of the congregation in part is following the leadership of the elders, practically, that's one great reason why there ought to be multiple elders instead of just one guy. Because it sure does sound weird when it's just one guy for him to stand up and say, obey me. How else am I supposed to preach Hebrews 13, 17 if I'm the only guy? 
It's just a weird situation, isn't it? But it says, obey your leaders, plural. There, there is practical difficulty that comes up when there's only one elder because he might be somebody that a lot of people look at and say, well, that guy's weird. I would be shocked if that doesn't happen every Sunday. <laughs> Not everything ought to rise and fall on the strengths and weaknesses and judgment calls of one man. And when it does, it makes it awfully difficult for a lot of people to obey Hebrews thirteen seventeen, to obey their leaders and submit to them. It makes it When there's just one guy, it makes it very easy to chafe under his leadership because you may or may not mesh with his personality. When there's just one guy, it makes it very easy to question even his biblical teaching and think, well, maybe it's just this guy's opinion and he's going way out on a limb. But when you have these elders who are biblically qualified and have the sanctified God-given desire and the ability to do the work, and they are together in this leading the church together, unified in purpose, preaching and bringing the word of God together, what, what a blessing that is just for the congregation to be able to look and to say, I don't have to think about whether or not it's just something going on in that one guy's head that is moving our church this direction or whatever else it is. It is, hey, this is the model God has given us and we need to follow our leaders. And you see them doing that here in Acts chapter 6. Another part of the role of the congregation is to recognize the graces, gifts, and sanctified desire in potential church officers. Now, here in particular, in Acts 6, you have them uh, doing this with the office of deacon. But we would take this also as an example of how church officers in general can be appointed. Now, at this point, they had never uh, had a church process of appointing a new elder. Later on, they would. You see, by the time you get to Acts 15, that there are additional elders who have been appointed in the church of Jerusalem. You see that Peter, who had been the primary preaching elder in the church of Jerusalem, he had left, and James, the brother of Jesus, who was not one of the original apostles, had been appointed as the primary preaching elder in Jerusalem at that point. It was kind of the primary spokesman. You see that they do that, but you see here just an example. Here's what it looks like for a church as a congregation, to appoint officers for itself. This church was called, as they were called together, they were told these instructions. Pick out from among you seven men, and here are the qualifications. A good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, who can be appointed to this duty. Those, those qualifications are, again, I mentioned this, preached on this last week. They are expounded upon in 1 Timothy 3. They're expounded upon in Titus 1. But the congregation needs to look at the Bible and say, what has the Bible said about who the men should be that God would raise up and to put into biblical office in the church? And the congregation is then to look around and to say, where has God done this work of grace? And the congregation is to say so. Now, how are we going to go about doing this as far as 
our desire to appoint elders here, what, what are we going to do? Well, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to have what, what we would call an advisory survey. You're already familiar with this if you've been around for a while because every year for the last several years, we have put out what we call, uh, we're now calling in the, the, the Constitution revision, an advisory survey um, where we ask uh, based on these qualifications that are listed out in the Bible for deacons, please write some names of men who you see as qualified to be deacons. And we're going to do that as far as elders go. We're going to say, hey, here is what the Bible has laid out of what it looks like when somebody has been qualified by the Holy Spirit of God to serve as an elder, and you, church member, who do you see in this church who has been qualified by God to serve in that way. Now, the fact that you see that may or may not mean that that actually turns out to be the case. It may be that you think that someone ought to serve who has no desire whatsoever to serve. There has to be a desire. It says that in 1 Timothy 3.1. It says that there has to be an aspiration to the office. There has to be a desire. Maybe there would be somebody who desires it, and who is qualified, and yet God has not brought about the providential circumstances of their life to be able to do it. And, and if that's the case, then you'd have to say, well, maybe God will change their circumstances one day, but you just practically have to be able to do it. And so it doesn't mean that every name that gets written down is guaranteed to be brought through a nomination process or something like that, but it does mean, hey, we need to do what it says in Acts 6 and go to the congregation and say, hey, congregation... Who do you see that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has worked the gift of being able to teach and the graces of those biblical qualifications in his life that could potentially serve as a spiritual leader in this church? So we'll do an advisory survey. We, we will, uh, after that, probably it will be the deacons and I in this first round where we don't have multiple elders to do the nominating yet. Probably it will be the deacons and I who will do an official nomination. Uh, along that process, it's not going to be any secret about who would be nominated. We're going to go through a training process with them. It's not going to be a secret thing where you say, who's in the training? We'll find out when the nomination comes. No, this is... It's going to be pretty obvious, all right? But, but, but you, church, you're going to have an opportunity to know these men, to examine these men, both on your own and formally. You'll have an opportunity to vote. But guys, I've got to say this. If God doesn't provide us with those men, we can't move forward. So pray that he will. Pray that he will, all right? Another thing that it says here that the church ought to do, a responsibility of the congregation is to vote on church officers, church membership, and other appropriate matters. Now, the church officers are listed here. You, you, you see that. The congregation is voting. They, are, they have picked out from among them these seven men, and then in that picking out, they, they then put them before the apostles, and the apostles lay their hands on them. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on, uh, on Acts chapter 14, and where there's the instruction there, uh, or excuse me, the example there and then the instruction in Titus 1.5 uh, about appointing multiple elders in every singular church. But that word appointing, appointing, is not about the elders who are already there just going and saying, I make you an elder. I make you know this is a congregational action. Even the word appointing, even John Calvin, the great Presbyterian, pointed out that that word means appointing by 
congregational action that would then be affirmed by the elders who were already in place. But it has to be a vote of the church. There are some other things that are also laid out in the New Testament that churches ought to vote on. One of those is right here. It's voting on church officers. Another thing is that churches are to vote on church membership, whether it's receiving a member in or whether it would be the sad situation of, uh, of, of removing a member from the role or, or excommunicating them uh, on the basis of known and unrepentant sin. Those instructions are laid out in places like Matthew 18, 17 through 18. By the way, if you say, but that, that is a hard task. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's why Jesus said in that passage, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. It's hard to do, but Jesus is with you in that congregation. It's laid out in places like 1 Corinthians 5, 4, and 5, and 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. I'm not going to read all those right now, but it is laid out for us in Scripture that the congregation needs to be involved in receiving or in uh, dismissing members. It's also prudent to vote on other major decisions. Uh, there's, there's other things that it's not explicit in the Bible that you have to vote on, but the Bible gives us a general idea that congregations are supposed to take ownership and responsibility for what's going on in their church. Let me tell you where I'm getting that from. I'm getting that from things like the fact that many of Paul's letters to the churches are addressed to the churches. You hear that? Like in Philippians 1, where, where the letter to Philippi is not just addressed to the pastors there, it's addressed to the pastors and to the deacons and to all the saints. And he then tells them, here's what you're to do. Or I'm getting that also from places like Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus addresses the seven churches in Asia. And with each one of those seven churches, he tells them, church you need to take responsibility for what is going on in your church spiritually. You need to see that your affairs are in order. You need to take responsibility for these things. With that in mind, you see that churches ought to vote on major decisions. Major decisions would be things like, uh, I mean, something as simple as adopting an annual budget. I would call that a major decision. That's appropriate to be voted on. Things that would be even bigger than that, like saying, maybe we need to change our statement of faith. I don't think we need to change our statement of faith, but the congregation would need to take ownership of that decision. Changing our governing documents, changing our associational relationships, constructing a new building, something like that. These big things, the congregation needs to be led by the elders, but it needs to come down to a congregational vote on these things. The elders, as it says in 1 Timothy 5.17, they are to rule well. And the congregation also needs to take responsibility for what it's doing. I'll tell you that analogy one more time. You've heard me say it 20 times now. The elders are to hold the steering wheel, and the congregation holds the emergency brake. That's how it works. Now, could that go wrong? Of course. You know what else could go wrong? Any other model of church leadership. There's always things that could go wrong, right? In a single pastor model, what if the pastor falls into grievous sin? Boy, that goes wrong, doesn't it? 
in, an, in an, a Presbyterian model? What if the Presbytery veers off from the gospel, which has happened in a sad number of those kinds of denominations? There, there are things that can go wrong in all kinds of ways, but usually when you encounter those objections to a church voting on things, it's this idea, but if the church votes, they're going to get it wrong. Well, there's two ways you can guarantee that the church is going to get it wrong. Okay? One way is to have the wrong kind of church voting on things. That's why we dealt with the issue of membership before we got to this point. If you have a church full of unregenerate, unaccountable people who are allowed to vote on spiritual issues, you can guarantee that you are going to get unspiritual direction on those spiritual issues. Instead, the way that the Bible lays it out is that our churches are to be made up of believers, of what's called living stones, who are founded on the rock of Christ, who are filled together with the Holy Spirit, who are accountable to one another. Not just people who happen to show up or happen to have come here and signed up at one point, but people who are together following after Christ. That's the picture of a church that we have in the New Testament. And that's the picture where we can say, this is a priestly kingdom. That's where we can say that here is the doctrine of the priesthood of believers. When we say the doctrine of the priesthood of believers, I want you to hear that I am not saying the doctrine of the priesthood of you individual believer because the Bible never says that. It always uses it in the plural, that we come together as God's people and we are called a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom, a priesthood of believers, plural, as we would make these decisions filled together as a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. As it says in 1 Corinthians 3, you, plural, are God's temple. And so what are we to do? We're to ask a spiritual church to vote on spiritual things. If we were to be asking, and if we were to open it up to say, well, anybody who's attended here in the last 10 years can vote on things, yeah, that'd be a huge problem, right? But we're saying, no, we trust that these are people who have been called and sanctified and born again and are led by the Spirit together, and so it's not a thing we have to worry about. A second thing is you could ask the congregation to vote on things that they ought not to be voting on. And what do I mean by that? I mean things that are not major decisions or membership or officers. If we were to vote on the color of the carpet, I guarantee that would be unhealthy. We don't have to vote on every dollar that is spent. We don't have to vote on every program that is organized. We don't have to vote on whether or not there will be a youth book club this Friday. We don't have to do those things. There are some churches that try to do it that way, and it's a disaster I'm not going to name any of them, but I know some of those pastors, and it is a disaster. Instead, what the church can do is they can say, we have voted on our church officers, our elders, and our deacons, and we trust them to lead in these things. And if a major decision comes up, or a decision that the Bible explicitly says that we need to vote on, like membership or officers comes up, we're going to vote on that, but we don't have to vote on every little thing just because there's a disagreement about it. That would be a formula for division and disaster. 
By the way, if you have an issue, when, when, when the annual meeting rolls around, we're, we're several months from it, we're several months away from it, um, it is a wise thing if you have something in your mind that you want to bring up to be voted on. It's a wise thing to talk to the pastor slash pastors or even the deacons about in advance um, just because you, you don't want to you don't want to cause division just because you've got something on your heart that you think, well, there ought to be a vote on this. Well, it's possible that there ought not to be a vote on it, all right? Uh, that's not to say that, that those concerns are insignificant, but again, if you say, I have it in my heart that we absolutely must change the carpet to lime green, and I feel so zealous about it that I'm going to bring it up at the church meeting, well, mm, you're going to cause some pain, <laughs> All right, so, so it is good to talk to your leaders about those things before you would bring them. Another thing that the church is to do is to serve, serve. The congregation is to serve. Again, I pointed out, these elders and these deacons, they couldn't possibly have been doing everything by themselves. They had to have lots and lots of help, thousands of people helping. The congregation had to serve, and the pastors, the teachers, had to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And you, congregation, that is your task, to do the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ, to put to work your spiritual gifts, to see spiritual needs and other needs, practical needs in the congregation that you could meet, people that you could serve, areas within the organization where you could serve, and to meet those things and to help build the church up together in love. Now, as I said, we don't want anybody who is serving to stop serving when titles and board structures change. But we want under the elders' leadership and under the coordination of the deacons, we can have ministry teams, we can have administrative positions, many of which already exist, like treasurer and uh, financial secretary and meeting moderator, those kinds of things. We can continue serving in those roles, but just with a biblical way of laying out that structure above it. Now, let's talk about where we go from here, okay? This is... I'll, I'll just give you a heads up. I'm kind of concluding where I'm taking you through this scripture at this point. And, and I hate to get away from scripture, but I just got to talk you guys as a congregation through what are our next steps. Now, now some of you already are familiar with these next steps because you picked up that Bible blueprints for plural eldership booklet. You've looked at those next steps that are coming up, but I just want to clarify that a little bit. And uh, I, I want to say that... Uh, uh, guys, I have been so blessed, first of all. I've been so blessed by the way that our current church officers, and I'm using that term in the way that our current constitution calls them that, which would be everybody on every board uh, and, and in every position. I've been so blessed by the way that, that you guys have, have been humbly and faithfully serving, and, and I want you to continue to humbly and faithfully serve. And, and we don't have any issues here with power plays. We don't have any issues here with, with competition. We, we have servant-hearted members who are seeking to do the work of the kingdom, and I want to see that increase. And we also need to recognize that that current structure of boards that we have is not the model that's in the Bible. And so what that means is that we go through, and as we talk about how are we going to arrange things in this, this new constitution, 
It, it can't just be such that you add on extra elders and keep everything just the same. That, it's just not what it ought to look like. Because as I said, the fact that we only have one means that right now the deacons are doing eldering type stuff. And we've got other boards that are doing things that ought to be coordinated by the deacons and so on and so on. So it, it affects all kinds of things. We, we really ought not to be calling anybody a church officer unless they are in one of these two offices that are in the Bible, which is elder or deacon. And it means that the current boards are, are not going to have quite the same role that they do right now. And, and like I said, it's, it's not because they've made bad decisions or anything like that. You guys have been serving faithfully. But we just want to follow the blueprints that are in the Bible. So it means that the elders, when they are appointed, elders need to take on the leadership role that is kind of sort of ambiguously filled by deacons right now. It means that deacons need to be free to take on coordination of administrative issues that other boards usually coordinate right now. It, it means that we want everybody to keep serving and to serve even more. And this could be in continuing in some of the necessary roles that you're already in. It could be in various ministry teams like a building maintenance team, a Lord's Supper and baptism preparation team, a shut-in ministry team, a children's ministry team, all kinds of things. But these changes, they're not going to leave anything unassigned. Uh, what, what we want to do is not tear down. We want to build up. And if we're going to build up, we want to build up according to the blueprints of the New Testament. And when we put all that together, maybe you can understand why we're not just looking at adding a single amendment onto the church constitution, but to having a fully revised church constitution because it kind of affects everything that's in there as far as the nitty-gritty of what's going on about how the church is run behind the scenes. So we're looking at a full revision, and because we're looking at a full revision, that also makes us look at everything that's in the document. So, for example, we will have a revised purpose statement of the church that would be there at the beginning that would lay out a little more clearly what is it that the Bible says is the purpose of a church. It means that we are looking at clarifying our statement on marriage and sexuality because that statement was written in 2013, which doesn't seem that long ago, but at that time, transgenderism was not on our radar at all. And, and so it's giving us an opportunity to relook at things like that, to add a section about our beliefs just to clarify that we have a statement of faith and that there ought to be a careful process should we ever decide that we need to change that statement of faith, things like that. But let me just tell you, here are the tentative steps ahead for us, okay, as we're looking at revising these things. First thing is that we're going to have an introduction of a proposed revised church constitution, Hopefully, that will be very soon. As I mentioned at the very beginning, my hope is that the meeting that the deacons and I are having this Tuesday is going to be the last one, <laughs> where, where after that meeting, we have a settled, revised constitution that we can just then start passing out to you guys for everybody to look at. And guys, it's long. It's boring. It is so boring. That's why I'm so eager to get back to preaching Romans next week, okay? <laughs> this stuff is so boring and so necessary because we got to build by God's blueprints. And so we, we need to have that. We need to consider that together as a church. 
We will have a town hall style meeting together where we will talk about it. Here's my guess. Here's what happens when we do things like this. We, we give the document out a couple of weeks in advance and we say, read through it. And, and we're going to have this meeting where we come together and you've read through it and we'll talk about it. And nobody reads through it. And they come to the meeting and they ask a lot of questions where we're like, well, you should read it. And then you'll see. And then We'll have another meeting where, where everybody's read through it and they get it, and so not as many people will come to that meeting. I don't know how it'll work out, all right? But this is, this is just the typical way. But what I'm saying is we're going to make sure that we have fully discussed and talked about this if we as a congregation together find, hey, there's something that the pastor and deacons just were, were kind of blind to when they were putting this together that the congregation has seen. We, we can revise it at that point. You know, it's not set in stone at that point, but we need to get to a point where we can vote on it together. When we vote on a revised constitution together, normally that would mean it immediately goes into effect, but we can't do that this time. You know why? Because we won't have elders yet at that point. And this is something where we can't start functioning as though we had multiple elders when we don't have them yet. And so when we have that vote, what it's going to be is going to be a vote where the congregation, you have affirmed, yes, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to do it upon such time that God has given us godly, qualified men who desire the office and are able to do it, that we can appoint, ordain into the office of elder, so that then at the time of putting them in that office, that's when that new constitution will go into effect. So just let me say that again. We will look together at the Constitution. We will discuss together the Constitution, potentially make changes if those are necessary. We will vote on the Constitution, but we will have to wait on implementing it until the time when elders are actually set aside. I want to say again, I hope that that is a near future date. In fact, I was looking back at the the booklet that I made for you guys in that booklet I wrote at a near future date. That's what I hope. That's what I pray. It could be a far future date if the Lord doesn't bring things together for us to be able to appoint elders who are biblically qualified. Pray that it will be sooner rather than later. Pray that God would do the work of bringing up those men, making it clear who should be in that role. And then once those men are are, uh, have been trained, have been uh, examined, have been voted upon by the congregation, have been uh, installed into office, then that's when we can roll with this new thing. Now, do you see why this has taken us all these years at this point? We, it's not like you just say, oh, we need elders, let's do it next week. It, this is, a, oh, again, it's so important and it's so tooth-pulling, and I want to go back to Romans, all right? <laughs> But that's what we'll do, and we'll nominate these lay elders. We will uh, use an advisory survey. I've already talked about that a little bit. But here's some steps for you, okay? Step number one, listen. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You know what I said earlier about what kind of congregation we have to have? You have to have a believing congregation. Here is the most important thing. I don't want to get away from this. I never want to preach a non-evangelistic sermon in my life. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. All of this stuff is completely irrelevant to you if you are not part of God's people. You need to be brought in by the blood of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be brought to life as a living stone 
who would then be built up together as a spiritual dwelling place for the Holy Spirit together with these brothers and sisters in Christ. Recognize your sin, repent of it, turn to Jesus in faith, be led by the Holy Spirit. Look at the Scriptures and see what God says to do, and it says first and foremost, believe in Him and be saved. For us who believe and who are part of this church together, pray that God will lead us to follow the blueprints for the church that he's laid out for us in the Bible. Read that booklet that I wrote for you. I wrote it for you on purpose as your pastor because I want it to lead you into the Scriptures. Read it. Look up the Scripture references. Do what it says in Acts 17.11 that the noble Bereans did. Examine the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Do that. Pray through the lists of qualifications for elders that are found in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. And consider whether anybody among us is somebody that God would qualify and, or has already qualified to serve as an elder. And praise that God, pray that God, as time goes on, would raise up more men who would be qualified to serve in that way. I said something last week kind of off the cuff about, hey, if you know somebody who's qualified, come and, come and tell me quietly. That's not the way you nominate somebody. I was just saying don't embarrass anybody by shouting their name across the room. All right? What we want to do as a church together is we want to follow this pattern. Here's what it looks like to appoint men to office. We recognize the necessary gifts and graces together as a congregation, and we affirm what God has done and we try to follow the blueprints of Scripture. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way that you have laid out these things for us in the Bible. We thank you for the way that Jesus instructed his apostles. We thank you for the way that the apostles carried out those instructions in the form of the church and in the instruction of the members. God, we thank you for not leaving us just simply to our own wisdom of how an organization could potentially be run to, to use our manly wisdom in, in building with, uh, with wood and hay and stubble. God, I pray that you would grant us to build with gold and silver and precious stones. Lord, I pray that you would not tear anything down here, but that you would simply build us up, build us up in love, build us up in service together. And God, would you unify us around these things? Would you grant us to love one another? And would you grant us to follow the word faithfully together? And would you grant us leaders that you would raise up and qualify? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.